If you have your Bible, let me invite you to take it and be finding your place with me in the book of Amos in the Old Testament. Amos is found in the section of the Old Testament known as the Minor Prophets. It's not a very lengthy book, and though Amos is a minor prophet, Amos has a major message. And we're three weeks into a study of this book that I've given the title, God and Justice. And the reason that I've given it that title is because the subject of divine justice is really the central theme of the book of Amos. Now, who was Amos? There's really nothing outside of this book that we know about him. And so the information that we're given about Amos comes from the message of Amos itself. We know from the very first verse of chapter 1 that he was a shepherd. He was from Tekoa, which was a village that was 10 miles to the south of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Chapter 7, he basically said that he didn't come from um, a prophetic family. His father wasn't a prophet. Um, But God's call came to Amos as he was watching sheep And the the, the call of God on his life sent him into the northern kingdom of Israel with a message. And the message of Amos really is one uh, whereby God's crying out against the sin and the immorality that was true of God's people in the north. Now, politically in his day, Amos lived in the days in which the kingdom had been divided. Uh, Well before his time, the kingdom was split Solomon's son, Rehoboam, uh, was king for just a short while whenever the ten northern tribes broke away from the Davidic dynasty and formed their own kingdom in the north. And eventually, Samaria became the capital of that northern kingdom known as Israel. In the south, you had two tribes, the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Judah. These two tribes remained loyal to the Davidic dynasty. And so the southern kingdom became known as Judah, and Jerusalem remained the capital of the southern kingdom. So Amos was living in the southern kingdom when the call of God came to his life. God sent him into the northern kingdom, and he was announcing a message of judgment. And what was that message? Well, in verse 2 of chapter 1, Amos begins his message in this way, the Lord roars from Zion. The lion of the tribe of Judah is roaring against the sins and really the injustice that was true of God's people there in the northern kingdom. They had become prosperous. They were spiritually complacent. They were steeped in idolatrous practices and the lack of true devotion to God Uh, led God's people in the north really to take advantage of one another and to mistreat their fellow human beings. And so really more so than any other book in the Bible, the message of Amos deals specifically with the way in which God's people treat one another. And so in that way, there is a major message that's so very applicable to where we are even now. So as we saw last week, beginning in chapter 1, the message of Amos begins by crying out against the sins of Israel's neighbors. And there are at least six nations that are represented with six separate oracles of judgment that are announced against those pagan uh, nations that surrounded Israel. 
really from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. And there's an expression that is used over and over again in these verses. And the expression is this, for three transgressions and for four. And in the Hebrew language, that's an idiom that's being used there. And it's used to convey a sense of fullness. We would express it this way in our vernacular, the straw that breaks the camel's back or the icing on the cake, that kind of thing. Uh, That's what's being said here. That's the message that's being conveyed for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. Or down in verse six, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four. Or Tyre, verse nine, Edom, Ammon, Moab that's mentioned as you get into the second chapter. God is holding these nations accountable for sins that involve the mistreatment of their fellow man. Sins that involved specific attitudes and behaviors that were shown toward other people. And so the way in which this sin is really brought to the forefront in the message of Amos is the way in which these nations proudly trampled on others. And so in that way, they had sinned against the law of God that's been stamped upon every human heart and conscience. Even though these were nations outside of the covenant that God had established with Israel, Paul is clear in Romans chapter 2 when he says that all of humanity really is without excuse because all of humanity, uh, the law of God has, written, uh, has been written upon the human heart. There are just some things by way of conscience that conscience itself should reveal. The way in which we treat one another as human beings. Alex Mateer has said this, it's a constant aspect of the Bible's view of life that earthly relationships always have a heavenly dimension. Actions directed towards men provoke reactions from God. And so again, one of the major takeaways from this message is simply this, our love for God often shows up in the way that we treat those who were made in God's image. And so don't tell me how much you love God if you mistreat those who've really been made in the image of God. And so as creator and judge, God holds humanity responsible for the way that we treat other people. And so that word justice then, in the biblical sense, it's the application of God's righteousness when it comes to our relationships with one another. And justice is a word that we hear a lot of these days, often used in a social sense, social justice, and yet the message of Amos is this message. Before justice is a human pursuit, before it's a moral obligation, before it's a legal requirement, justice is a divine attribute. Rooted in the very nature and character of God as he's revealed himself in his word. And so apart from that objective reality then, there can really be no true justice. So God deals with these nations over the sins of which they were guilty of committing, and yet there's some principles that can be applied even now to our human relationships with one another, and we looked at some of those principles last week. So the message then of Amos says that God is outraged with the society whose social consciousness, listen to this, it's been destroyed to such a degree that it tolerates such things 
as these nations that are mentioned in chapter 1 and on into chapter 2 tolerated. And, and, and what's ironic is even though we live in a time where there's so much emphasis being placed on justice, at the same time there's so much talk about justice, there's also an absence when it comes to true righteousness. And let me tell you something, there can be no true social justice until there's first of all moral righteousness. And apart from moral righteousness that's rooted in the character of God himself, there can be no justice as far as human society is concerned. And this is just simply the way that God has designed humanity to function. And so there's a link then between idolatry and inhumanity. And I want to show you from some verses that we're going to look at here in just a few minutes how this is is exactly so. Now, up until verse 4, the message of Amos has been dealing with those pagan nations that surrounded Israel. So Amos has begun his message, and here's what he's doing. He's getting the attention of those in the north, God's people in the north. And yet he's getting a little bit closer to home with each nation that's mentioned until finally, verse number 4, he begins dealing with God's covenant people. Kind of reminds me of a story that I heard about a person that criticized to their pastor and said, I don't know why you always preach about sin in the life of Christians. After all, the sins of Christians are different than the sins of unsaved people. To which the pastor replied and said, you're right, they're worse. (laughs) And that's exactly what the Lord is saying to his covenant people through the message of the prophet Amos. So notice what is said there beginning in verse number four. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Why? Because they've rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for uh, prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not retain his strength. Nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty 
shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. I want to speak from this subject this morning, God's message to his covenant people. God's message to his covenant people. The six nations mentioned up through verse 4 were nations that were without the law of God in the sense of the Ten Commandments, the law that God himself had revealed to his covenant people at Mount Sinai. Yet they were still accountable to God because God had sufficiently revealed who he is in a general sense. But here, beginning in verse number four, you'll notice Judah is mentioned, and then in verse number six, Israel is mentioned, and this is God who's specifically dealing with his covenant people. These were people who had uh, been given possession of God's law, his righteous requirements, the truth of who he was as he had revealed himself to humanity. They were recipients of covenant blessings as God's covenant people. And yet, in spite of all of that light, they had abandoned his truth, and they were taking advantage of one another, and the prophet Amos is sent with this message of judgment. So what is it exactly that God's covenant people are being held accountable for here, beginning in verse number four? Well, notice that it involves a few things. First of all, it involves rejecting the truth that God had revealed. God is holding the people of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, he's holding them accountable for rejecting the truth that he himself had revealed. So again, you've got two separate nations that are being dealt with, but both of these nations, both Judah uh, in the south, Israel in the north, they're representative of God's covenant people. And yet, you study Old Testament history, you'll discover that for the most part, the kings in the south uh, were more true to Mosaic law than their counterparts in the north. And yet, disobedience and idolatry were still big problems in the southern kingdom. Because those who had the truth, those who were in possession of the truth, somewhere along the way, they began to take it for granted. And before long, they had rejected it entirely, And you'll notice there in verse 4 at least three ways in which Judah had rejected God's revealed truth. To begin with, they had rejected God's truth uh, mentally. Uh, Notice God says, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord. Uh, The Hebrew word translated rejected there, it's a word that means to despise something uh, or to turn away from within. Now again, notice how different this is from the preceding messages addressing those uh, nations around Israel. They had sinned against the light of God's general revelation, how he had revealed himself through creation. He had revealed himself and what had been stamped upon their conscience and the human heart. But now Judah, God's covenant people, is under judgment because they had sinned against the light of God's special revelation referred to there in verse 4 as the law of the Lord. And so what this is saying is that their minds had turned away from the truth that God had revealed. And so his law, the law that's referenced there, it's not so much as injunctions as it is God's instructions. It's referring to his statutes that revealed his character as well as his expectations for his covenant people. 
It was the psalmist who expressed this so beautifully in Psalm 1 uh, when he wrote, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That is, inwardly he delights in God's revealed truth. Uh, He delights in that which God has given in his word. On his law he meditates day and night. The idea is because he uh, loves God's instruction that's been revealed, he then immerses himself in that instruction. His mind, his heart, his life is saturated with that truth. And what's the result of that? The psalmist said that he's like a tree that's planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. So the person who immerses himself in the truth of who God is and what God has revealed in his word, God's revealed truth, the person who immerses himself in that truth, understands that truth, his mind has been enlightened by the Holy Spirit to that truth, this is the one who's really going to be able to see the world as it is. This is really the one who's going to be able to navigate life. A lot of people are looking around trying to understand their existence and trying to understand how the world works around them. But uh, let me just tell you this, apart from understanding that God has revealed himself and that we have a revelation of his truth, his expectation for humanity in his word, in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, unless you begin there, you will not understand the world. All that you'll be left with is theory, and you'll spend your days running around in circles. And so think about this, somewhere along the way, Judah, even though they were God's covenant people, who had been the recipients of this special revelation of God's truth, somewhere along the way, they became enamored with man's ideas. They turned away from the law of the Lord. Amos didn't say that about Damascus. They didn't have God's law in the sense of his special revelation. They're still accountable. Amos didn't say that about Gaza or Tyre or Edom, the people of Ammon, the people of Moab. None of those other nations had been so blessed as God's covenant people. But here, God's covenant people are being held accountable because they have rejected the truth that God himself had revealed. And by the way, this is why their sin is that much more serious. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, he said, to whom much is given, much will be required. You, you think about just the, the amount of light that by God's grace, you and I have been privileged to receive. Most of us have a copy of God's word. I would say all of us have a copy of God's word. Most of us have multiple copies of God's word in multiple translations. And there's an abundance of light. And so for someone to say, I really don't have any understanding of God or his word, let me tell you something. It won't be because you don't have an abundance of light. It'll be because of lack of interest. 
And to whom much is given, much will be required. Judah had sinned against an abundance of light. And the truth of God had been revealed. His testimony had been written on stone tablets. But mentally they had turned away from it. Now that led to a second step. That led to sort of a practical abandonment. Their mental Unbelief led to a practical abandonment, the way that they were living their life, their decision-making. Look at how verse 4 goes on to say, because they've rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. And so this second step in their spiritual decline is linked to the first. An inward turning away from the truth led to an outward result. By despising the law of the Lord inwardly, they began to disregard the law outwardly. We could say it this way, those who had been in possession of the truth failed to live in submission to the truth. You you can have possession of the truth and yet fail when it comes to living in submission to that truth. When you open up your Bible and you read as a believer, you know the You're not reading just for the sake of reading and gaining information. You're reading so that you can obey what God has said. So possession of the truth has got the result in submission to the truth. Judah had possessed the truth, but they were not submitting to that truth that had been revealed. Truth was supplanted by that which was false. What was divine was replaced by what was human. Their standard of authority had shifted from God and his unchanging word to man and his constantly changing opinions. Now you notice the third step that's mentioned there at the close of verse number four. They rejected the law of the Lord. Mentally they had rejected God's word. They had not kept his statutes. Practically they had rejected God's word. But then notice where it led. Ultimately their lies have led them astray even those after which their fathers had walked. So they had rejected God's law, they had not kept his statutes, and it ended up with them being swept away with the lies of society. Their rejection had led them off a cliff of deception. They exchanged the law of God for the lies of their fathers. Even though they possessed the truth, they preferred the traditions of man. And the traditions of man, this is what took the place of that which was authoritative and binding in their life. And so the contrast here is seen between that which is true and that which is false. God's law is standing in contrast to their lies. One person has said it this way, the ancient people of God stood where the people of God still stand, constantly assailed by competing voices saying, this is the way, walk in it. You realize every day we're bombarded with those statements saying, this is what's true, embrace it. This is how you ought to think, believe it. This is how you ought to live. This is how you should view the world. This is what should be authoritative and binding in your life. Walk in it. So where is truth to be found? How is truth to be known? Truth is found in God himself who's revealed himself 
And he's given us the objective standard of his word. And so folks, when authority shifts from the divine to the human, error always takes the place of truth. And Judah had willfully embraced the lies of their generation, which were really just the same old lies of a former generation that had been repackaged and given a new name. Y'all know the devil doesn't ever have an original idea. He has nothing original. The only thing that Satan can do is take that which God himself has given to humanity, and so what Satan will do, he'll take it, he'll twist it, he'll pervert it, he'll distort it, and he'll try to sever it from its divine source. That's what he always does. That's how he always trips up humanity. Ecclesiastes 1.9 says that what has been will be again. There's really nothing new under the sun. As far as ideas are concerned, I've heard it expressed this way. If it's new, it ain't true. And if it's true, it ain't new. All lies originate with Satan, who's the father of lies, and he's been peddling the same old lies since his days in the garden. He doesn't have any original ideas. And his tactics are always the same. How is it that he deceived Eve, going all the way back to Genesis 3, there in the garden, where God had clearly revealed his word, do not eat the fruit that I've forbidden you. How is it that the serpent deceives Eve, going all the way back to the garden? Well, the first lie is, has God really said? So the first lie is he always questions whether or not God has really said. And then his second lie, it's, it's, it's so subtle. His second lie is basically, is God good? He basically tempts Eve and deceives Eve into thinking that God was holding out on her by commanding she and Adam not to eat the fruit that they'd been forbidden to eat. The third lie, what's the third lie? You can be God. And the serpent says with a hiss, and I can hear it even now in my mind's eye, if you just took that fruit, God knows the day that you eat, your eyes are going to be opened and you will be like God. And those three lies basically sum up the way that the devil has been tripping up individuals and the way that the devil has been tripping up nations since the dawn of human civilization. Has God said, is God good, you can be God. And oftentimes, Satan will come along and he will whisper those lies into your ear when you find yourself as a believer in a real place of discontent. It was Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan, that said that Satan loves to fish in the troubled waters of a discontented heart. The way that he deceived Eve, that's the way that he deceives the nations even today. And it all begins with casting doubt on what God has revealed to be true. If he can cast doubt on what God has revealed to be true, and you begin to buy into that hook, line, and sinker, you will be led astray by lies. And folks, that's exactly where our society is. Ideas that are making a comeback under a new name. It's just the same old lies, repackaged, giving a different name. God is not at the center of it. 
And, and Paul basically says that this is the way it always goes with human societies. Once human societies detach themselves from the authoritative standard of God's truth. Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 1. Uh, flip over to Romans chapter 1 for just a second. And look at what he says there. Beginning in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. Basically Romans chapter 1. The apostle Paul. He's writing to believers in Rome that he had never personally visited, but he's, he's going to write an extended treatment on what the gospel is. And he begins with just this summary of what happens as far as human society is concerned that rejects the truth that God has revealed both in a general sense as well as the truth that God has revealed in a special sense. And so the point that he's making here in this passage is that all people have access to evidence for God's existence. How so? Paul says through the created order. Look at what he says there beginning in verse 18. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How has he shown it? Look at verse 20. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Creation itself is testimony that there is an omnipotent creator. The psalmist said in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, creation itself is constantly preaching a message that there is a God who is in charge. And this God is orderly. This God is true. Humanity is accountable to him. And then you've got the evidence of man himself who's been made in the image of God, who does have a conscience, who does have a sense of right and wrong, who does have a sense of justice, even though all of that's been deeply affected by sin. But man has been created as a personal moral agent with the capacity to think, with the capacity to feel, with the capacity to choose, with the capacity to act. And so the fact that man has this capacity to think, that's evidence that there is some divine mind behind man's own existence. The fact that man has the capacity to feel, this is evidence that there is an omnipotent creator who understands emotion. The fact that man has been created with a will to choose, to act, that he's a free moral agent. This is evidence that he is accountable to a God and he's been made in the image of this God. And folks, all of this did not arise by chance. There is a divine architect behind your existence. And is it any wonder we've got generations of people who are confused as to their place in the universe and their place in the world when we've sold them a bill of goods and the devil has sold them a bill of lies that they're nothing more than the result of some chemical accident. Your life is more than that. You're more than that because there's a God in heaven who's made you in his image. And that's something that your conscience tells you 
Paul goes on and says, though, that humanity suppresses this evidence of God from creation. Man's not comfortable with the truth that there's an omnipotent God to whom he's accountable. So what does he do? He suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. The idea is he runs from this God and he tries to hide from this God because his conscience tells him that he's accountable to this God. The moment that Adam and Eve fell in the garden, what did they do when God came calling? They ran and they tried to hide and they, they made fig leaf aprons for themselves, trying to cover themselves and conceal their shame. And it became the first, the first false religion. And those fig leaves became the first idols. And so Paul goes on and says that man then because he suppressed the truth that God's revealed, he then creates idols to take the place of God himself. What does he go on? Look at what he says in verse 21. Though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of this God. Down in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who made them. So the Bible then says that the most fundamental decision that we will face in our life is what we will recognize as the ultimate reality, source and cause of our existence. And the Bible speaks of this choice in terms of who or what we worship. All of us have got to answer the challenge that Joshua issued to Israel as they were on the verge of entering the promised land. Remember what Joshua said? He said, choose this day whom you will serve. So worship is non-negotiable. All of humanity worships someone or something. That's just the way that humanity's been designed. You say, what about the atheist? What about the person who doesn't even believe in God or organized religion for that matter? He still bows to something in his heart that he says is ultimate. And that's what he gives his allegiance to. And it forms the worldview by which he begins to look at the world around him and try to interpret his place in that world. But idols take the place Once that truth of God has been suppressed, Paul's point in Romans 1 is that idols always take the place that's intended to be occupied by the one true God in a person's heart and life. That's why over and over again, the Bible constantly has something to say, some warning against idolatry. And this is especially true in the lives of God's covenant people. An idol is anything we want more than God, anything that we rely upon more than God, anything we look to for greater fulfillment than God. And idolatry, this is the sin that ultimately drives all other sins. Nancy Piercy, I love how she expresses it this way as far as idolatry is concerned. She says, why do we lie, for example? Because we fear the disapproval of people more than we want the approval of God. Or because we value our reputation more than we value our relationship with God. Or we're trying to manipulate someone into giving us something we think we need more than God. 
The more visible sin is driven by an invisible turn of our hearts towards something other than God as the ultimate source and security of our lives or happiness. Wow. So that explains why idolatry is the most discussed problem in the pages of God's own word. Even in Ephesians chapter five where Paul is dealing with the church And in verse five, he's urging the church to not be sexually immoral, to not be impure, to not be covetous. And then he adds what seems to be somewhat strange. He says, for that person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. And so sexual sin then, and sexual perversion then, really is a symptom of a much greater issue is that there's an idol enthroned in a person's heart and that idol has got to be torn down. So you you go back to the message of Amos then as far as God's people in, in the southern kingdom, they had rejected the truth, they had rejected the revealed truth of God, rejected his law, despised his precepts, and their lies were leading them astray. I think the NIV translates it this way, their false gods were leading them astray. False ideologies were leading them astray. That which they had come to believe was ultimate was leading them astray. And they became futile in their thinking. And you know where all of this ultimately will lead? Now here's my point. I want to just kind of close with this. I only preached one point in the first service. I'm going to preach one point in this service. But Paul says this in Romans chapter 1. God gives us up ultimately to the consequences of our idols. What are those consequences? A debased mind. A debased mind. In other words, counterfeit. A debased worldview, it's one that offers a counterfeit God, makes false promises, gives misleading answers to the questions of life. And then another consequence, dishonorable behavior. You can go on and you can read the rest of Romans chapter 1 where Paul discusses how human behavior is then given over to sexual immorality and perversion and homosexuality dishonorable passions. Verse 29, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So the end result of rejecting God's revealed truth will be a complete collapse in terms of human relationships. Inhumane treatment, man who treats unjustly his fellow man, it can all be traced back ultimately to an idol that's enthroned in man's heart. So an unjust society is the logical result of the society that has rejected the truth. And I find it so ironic in these days when so many are talking about social justice that at the same time we want social justice, we've come to reject moral righteousness. And you can't have one without the other.
Now, you know, my concern this morning is not so much for an unbelieving nation that surrounds us. My concern is for the covenant people of God, the church that God's called me to shepherd. And folks, long before we ever begin pointing fingers of accusation at an unbelieving culture around us, the message of Amos is this, church, take a long, hard look in the mirror because you're under the microscope. Has the grace of God that you've personally experienced in your life and the truth of the gospel, the light of Christ that's illuminated your mind and your heart and your understanding, has this resulted in you being a compassionate, honest, trustworthy person who pursues justice and mercy and grace and compassion in your relationships with other people? Because if not, then you've got every reason in the world to question whether or not you've truly come to believe the gospel of Jesus. Let's stand for prayer. Wow. Judah had rejected the truth. That led to a practical result. They were being led astray by lies. The same old lies that their fathers and their ancestors had gotten caught up in. But in their generation, those lies were just given a different package and a different label. And folks, those same old lies are still around today. Has God said? Is God good? You can be God. Don't buy into the enemy's lie. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Aren't you grateful for the message of the gospel? and the free offer of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus this morning? If not, listen, right there where you are. Confess your sin and your need for the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, I know that I've sinned and I know that I'm accountable before you. My conscience even tells me this and the convicting work of your spirit tells me this. But I believe that the Lamb of God died on the cross for my sin and I believe that he rose again from the dead and in faith, I turn to Jesus. Believer, there's an application for your life here. The basis of authority in your life, your worldview. Are we allowing the world and the culture and social media to formulate what we believe about issues of life more so than God's revealed and authoritative word? Let's not fall into that trap. Lord, thank you for the message of Amos. What a timely message, Lord. By your grace and mercy, Lord, every single person, even those, Lord, that are far from you in unbelief, every single person has been created in the image of God. They're loved by God, in need of God and his grace. And Lord, your grace in our lives as your covenant people Lord, this ought to result in us being just and gracious in our dealings with one another and with those around us. And in that way, Lord, we can point people to the hope that we found in the Lord Jesus. So, Lord, whatever decisions need to be made today in the lives of your people, Lord, may there be freedom and clarity in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.